Cyber is the most inexpensive, highly destructive, highly deniable weapon. You don't see the war, but war is taking place. Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? Welcome to this, the seventh of Shoreline's Maritime Risk Podcasts. I am Nick Taylor, and as Shoreline's cyber consultant, I will be speaking to Julian Clark. Julian is the global senior partner at Co and also heads up INS Maritime's cyber initiative. The timing of the podcast is ideal, as it gives us the opportunity to provide ship owners and their brokers comment on the recent implementation of IMO regulations that in effect oblige ship owners to address cybersecurity within their safety management systems. We will also be looking at the contractual relationships between owners and their charterers and or third-party suppliers and the consequences of breaches of ship owners' advertised cybersecurity standards. We will be discussing the implications of the recent introduction of a broader exclusion of malicious cyber risk from property and liability insurance policies and the potential impact on ship owners and or charterers and whether there are tailored insurances that can take up some of the additional exposures that arise both at sea and on shore. But first of all, I'm going to ask Julian to summarise what lies behind the recent launch of INS Maritime's cyber initiative. Yes, thanks, Nick. I think we've all seen that cyber uh, risk in maritime is increasing greatly. And I think we'll probably, as we go through this podcast, talk about some of the statistics in relation to that. We've also, of course, seen the IMO regulation coming into force that will uh, require all vessels to have a cyber uh, system in place by the next annual verification of a safety management system. And all these things led me to realise that there's a gap in the market in order to assist owners, operators, charters, everybody involved in the maritime uh, field to deal with this uh, new regulatory uh, requirement, but also the increasing uh, risk of cyber. And it seemed to me that if I'm if I was sat in the chair of an owner, I'm looking for somebody to give me consultancy advice in relation to ensuring that I'm compliant with the regulations. I'm looking for uh, probably a lawyer to explain to me and make sure that my cyber protections in my contracts are valid and effective. And I'm also, hopefully, looking for somebody that can give me a technological solution, not only showing me my cyber awareness about how much I may or may not be at risk, uh, but also, uh, in an ideal world, providing me with a cyber defence. And my thought was, rather than allow an owner to look at the myriad of providers out there, some of those that can do the job, and unfortunately a lot of those that can't, why not bring all that together under one roof as a one-stop shop? And so we launched on the 1st of February a new corporate called Ince Maritime, and that does exactly that. It provides a full consultancy service 
under the INS brand that can uh, look at the regulations worldwide and assess whether a company is compliant. And if it's not, assist them to become compliant. So that allows a uh, company to set up protocols and procedures and uh, emergency risk drills for cyber intervention. Under the INS brand, we provide the full uh, legal service. Uh, so not only checking the contracts, checking the wordings and ensuring that they're fit for purpose, uh, but that we're also there uh, in case there is a cyber breach, because we've seen with things like MERSCs being caught up in the NotPetya uh, cyber attack, that resulted in disruption, which cost them in excess of 300 million uh, US dollars. Uh, so having the legal support to minimize uh, business interruption, potential damaged reputation. Uh, but thirdly, and then most importantly, Leo also providing a technological solution, uh, which we've done by going into a cooperation with a company in the United States called Mission Secure. Uh, and what they did is they've developed an active cyber defense for operational technology through work that they were doing with the US Air Force and US Navy. And this allows us not only to do a full technical cyber assessment of a uh, vessel systems, but also put in place a 24-7 actual live defense uh, cyber attack in the operational technology field. So all that comes together as a one-stop shop. So the, the thinking behind the decision was to really create for an owner or an operator a solution that covers their entirety of their regulatory and cyber risk. Great introduction, Julian. Thank you very much for that. So let's tap into your insurance expertise on the subject of PI cover. Most ship owners arranging a fixed cost PI club entry or policy in February this year, such as fixed PI or charters liabilities or ship owners' liability to cargo, will have been subjected to the inclusion of LMA 5403 in the terms and conditions of this year's entries. The clause is known as the Malicious Cyber Exclusion Clause. And to me, it felt the inclusion was introduced by p insurers at unreasonably short notice and with little more in the way of explanation other than that it came imposed by reinsurers late in the renewal round. In short, this clause excludes from cover the use or operation as a means for inflicting harm of any computer, computer system or software, malicious code or computer virus. Please discuss the scope of the exclusion dealing with the absence of the word malicious in the actual text of the clause and commenting as to what types of claims might fall or not fall within the exclusion and who bears the onus of proof. That's a, a great question. I'm mindful of time. I'll try and summarise this as briefly as I can while still making this a useful answer uh, to those listening to this podcast. There's been an absolutely immense amount of debate uh, about the clause, both in the insurance sector and in the legal sector. And, and what is meant by those words as a means of inflicting harm? And that creates an awful lot of questions to which there aren't at present really adequate answers. It's a provision that hasn't yet received judicial attention. There's been no case that has gone through the courts, or as far as I'm aware, through arbitration is obviously confidential. There may be an arbitration out there, but certainly what, not one that I'm aware of. Um, so 
so we don't have any guidance from decided cases. Uh, and the kind of questions that you immediately ask in relation to that statement as a means of inflicting harm is, well, what do you mean by harm? Uh, is that physical damage? Is it actual loss? Is it disruption? Uh, and even if you can address that question, you're still then left with the questions, harm by whom and to what? Is indirect harm, for example, accidental and therefore covered? Now, as I say, no judicial direction on that. Indeed, there was no judicial direction on the predecessor to LMA 5403, which was CL380. So what we have to do is turn to how the market is reacting. And my view is that there appears to be a general market approach that harm does mean a malicious act. So, for example, a cyber attack. And, and that's notwithstanding the absence of the word malicious in the clause. Where that leads you to is a question of what about an innocent act uh, such as an employee error? And let me give you a, just a scenario uh, which I hope starts to introduce the difficulties with interpreting the clause. Assume that there's a, an officer of the watch and he realises suddenly that his mobile phone has, has run out of battery or is about to run out of battery. And so innocently, albeit contrary to standing instructions in the vessel's SMS and standing instructions for the company, he, he thinks, look, I'm just going to plug the phone into the Ignis because uh, I'm just going to recharge it. Uh, but what he doesn't realise is that the phone is carrying some malware that's possibly been carrying that malware for, for weeks. And as a result of plugging the phone in to recharge, he now infects the Ignis. Now, that's an innocent act so far as he's concerned. He wasn't maliciously trying to load malware into the ship's systems. Uh, indeed, the hacker that originally hacked into his phone, quite possibly, had no idea that uh, the person was a seafarer or that, that this would infiltrate or affect the vessel. But certainly the hacker probably did intend harm and so that now gets us into the whole debate of intention versus negligence. If you look at the Lloyd's Market Bulletin definition as what cyber risk is, this is Y5258, that tells you that any risk where losses are cyber-related arising from either malicious acts, so that would be, as we've discussed, cyber attacks, so an infection of an IT system with a malicious code, but also covers non-malicious acts, so loss of data, accidental acts and emissions uh, involving either tangible or intangible assets. So the answer to that question of intention v negligence is probably that intention goes to maliciousness, uh, whereas negligence or omission may allow an attack to bite, that in itself wouldn't trigger the exclusion. Now, the scope of the application is very wide, and this is where one of the difficulties arises, because the provision states, directly or indirectly, caused by or cont contributed to, by, or arising from. That's incredibly wide. So an innocent target could well be caught in the crossfire. Uh, we mentioned when we were discussing this just now, uh, when I started answering this question, uh, look at Maersk. Maersk wasn't attacked by NotPetya. It almost certainly now the NotPetya attack derived from a geopolitical source, which was Russia attacking Ukraine. And Maersk just got caught up in that. 
so that probably would fall within the exclusion, even though there was no direct uh, intention, if you like, because the catch-all is uh, caused by or contributed to by or arising from. Therefore, if you look at ransomware, malware, denial of service, even a phishing attack could appear to be caught. Certainly, malicious acts by an employee would, would be caught. As to what would not be caught, in my view, they would be accidental disruption or corruption of files, uh, a general system malfunction, the negligent use of a computer system. So you see this line starting to be drawn between maliciousness and innocent negligence or failure of operation. And, and that's where I think the clause is supposed to operate. But but as we've seen, it, 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 there are a lot of grey lines here. Getting to your question as to burden of proof, it would be for the assured to show that the loss falls within the peril. It would then be for the underwriter to bring themselves within the exception. Uh, but certainly that's a playing field that favours the underwriter. And again, that's not least due to the fact that the provision is framed in extremely broad terms. So it's not necessary to show proximate cause. Uh, remote cause will be enough due to that very wide wording, directly or indirectly, caused by or contributed by to, by or arising from. And again, what's happening here is it is creating a minefield. There's two really good examples of this that are actually very significant cases. They're not maritime, but they're running through the US courts at the moment. One is a party called Merck, who are in dispute against Allianz and other underwriters. And the other case is a case called Mondelez, which is principally against Zurich. And that was, those two cases both involved NotPetya and the NotPetya disruption. Both companies suffered property damage and business interruption claims. And they made claims under the cover that they had for BI, for cyber losses. So there was a policy in place uh, for business interruption and cyber losses. But the underwriters, both underwriters, so Zurich and Allianz and those that follow, have denied cover on the basis that the attack falls within the war and terrorism exclusion. So the question which is now being covered by the US courts is, does a state-sponsored cyber attack, go back to what I said earlier, not Petia was a state-sponsored cyber attack, does that constitute an act of war or terrorism? Therefore, can the underwriters reserve cover? Now, this brings us back, brings me back memories of uh, the English uh, law case that has looked at that issue of what is war and exclusions for war, which happened after the events of 9-11, and a case that was between the US cruise line Silver Sea and their underwriter IF, where Silver Sea was arguing that 9-11 was an act of war. Uh, now, that was rejected by the Courts of Appeal on the facts, but the law's never really been settled on those issues. So, unfortunately, it is my view that LMA 5403 uh, has created a whole world of uncertainty, and it's not uh, an easy sea for a owner-operator charter to, charter to sail through. So, just looking ahead, <clears throat> the reinsurances of the international group of P&I clubs for their mutual or pooled entries had been arranged for two years from February 2020 without the possibility of being able to, check, to uh, 
and make amendments to the terms and conditions at this immediate past February renewal. But there is an expectation then that LMA 5403 potentially could be introduced to that program at next year's renewal with the full scope of ambiguity, arguably, and but also broad impact on the shipowning community. And it would also mean that the clubs will no longer benefit from reinsurances that are back-to-back with international conventions, such as the Civil Liability Convention, that does not contemplate any such restrictions in cover. Certification also for vessels who will be calling into United States waters in compliance with the Old Pollution Act 1990 will also uh, be complicated. So it looks as though the IGA have quite a full agenda on their hands for this coming summer. Okay, Julian, just looking back at your experience on the implementation of the ISM code and the additional obligations on ship owners imposed by the IMO's MSC 428, brackets 98, have you seen cases brought by regulators and or charterers alleging alleging failure to uh, failures in compliance with updated requirements of the ship, of the ship management systems and if so what have been the consequences i don't know i don't know whether it's i'm young enough to remember or old enough to remember uh, but i do remember when ism was coming in and i was fortunate enough in those very early days of my legal career to be with uh, clever chance in the days when Chance still had a maritime department and was mentored uh, by uh, the brilliant Tony Vlasto. And we were we, we were looking at the ISM code's introduction and trying to crystal ball gaze into what this would mean. And, and we did uh, suspect that it would trigger a whole raft uh, of litigation. Actually, it, it didn't, and so far hasn't in itself. So in relation to what you've just said about cases being brought by regulators and or charters, not directly on the ISM code, but what ISM compliance has done is played a huge part in litigation, either in being the foundation for or showing or seeking to defeat due diligence defences and all the other various defences available to the ship owner. It has opened up an entire paper chain uh, as a result of the process of discovery. Um, now, we're going to have to wait to see uh, what happens now that the new MSC 42898 is in force. Uh, but what I believe is that this has uh, turned an even greater spotlight on regulation and compliance. And where are we now? We're in April doing this podcast, so it's only been the first few months. And of course, the full implication of MSC 42898 won't kick in until each vessel's SMS annual verification uh, takes place. But we, we're already seeing increases in regulatory compliance spot checks. So US Coast Guard uh, taking a very aggressive uh, position. Uh, there was recently a case where a vessel suspected it had been cyber compromised and US Coast Guard kept that vessel off 
at her port of destination while they conduct, conducted a full cyber investigation, which I believe took a couple of weeks. We've seen Ockham tied up their uh, position. Of course, we've had TMSA3 in the tanker sector uh, in place for some time now, but that's really going to start to bite, in my view. We've also seen right ship are going to start looking very closely at cyber compliance as part of their investigations in the bulk trade. And we're going to have to see what happens with port state control. When you look at the question of how are uh, port states going to interpret the new IMO regulation and what checks and balances are they going to put an owner through? Although I haven't, uh, I can't say that there's been a raft of cases uh, brought by regulators certainly the, it's going to be a harder playing field uh, for owners. And, and what I can definitely say is uh, a tick box approach to compliance it is, does not cut the mustard. In fact, I think a tick box approach to compliance could well prove to be more dangerous. So you really need to go further now. Look at what is being asked of you in relation to the IMF regulation and really look at your systems and ensure that you are set up to actively be able to defend a cyber attack and that you have systems in place as to how you are going to react if you are faced with the cyber attack. Okay, I, I think that's that's a brilliant because it leads quite well into the next question where I'm just going to really focus on TMSA3 and the representations that are actually made in fulfilling that, that, that self-assessment. To what extent could a breach of cybersecurity impact charter parties conditioned on representations that are found to be flawed by a cyber attack? And is there a risk that a charterer could allege a lack of seaworthiness, say to avoid GA contributions, or otherwise escape from charter party obligations? And worse still, could a P&I club or hull underwriter adopt a lack of seaworthiness as a defence to be to be deployed to to avoid claims. What might be the consequences of these scenarios? Nick, I think you've really hit the nail on the head here. There are a couple of things at the moment that keep me awake at night. One of them is the what I think is an increasing risk of terrorism in the maritime sector and terrorism operating through cyber. And the other one is this point that you've just highlighted very well, which I think is the spectre waiting in the wings. Let's go back to, I think, when we started, we were talking about exposure in the sector from maritime risk and how that has increased. We've seen a 400% increase over the last 12 months in attacks on the maritime sector alone. And if that figure isn't staggering enough, we've seen a 900% increase I still, I still stop myself when I say that, but a 900% increase in attacks on operational technology over the last three years. Now, if you look at the concept of due diligence and the application of, the, say, the Hague-Visby uh, rules, the Article 4, uh, Rule 2 uh, defences, and let's just, as an example, take a bulk carrier, but we, we could talk about a, a tanker vessel. We all know as a ship owner, what we need to do to show integrity of our hatch covers or integrity of our fire fighting system. 
But what do we need to do in order to show due diligence in relation to our cyber systems? Where do you draw the line on that? Is it enough uh, for an owner to say, I acquired the system from a recognised provider? Is it enough to say, look, I, I've got a clause here or a provision which passes on responsibility to ensure uh, cyber integrity to the provider or the manufacturer of the system? Or do you need to go further uh, and take responsibility for that system yourself? Uh, and what does that mean? Does it mean you just run a check? Uh, does it mean that you actually have to audit every single line of code uh, within a system on board a vessel? Now, of course, duties of due diligence are generally not delegable. So while you might have a contractual provision saying that ultimately the manufacturer is taking responsibility for cyber integrity, what you've done is you've created a right of recourse but you've not created a defence to the claim itself. You can't, you can't point to the manufacturer and say, don't come to me, come to them. What you've done with your clause is you've created a way to seek redress against them, but that doesn't stop the claim coming directly against you. And the problem with that is the problem that we always have with recourse provisions against third-party providers, uh, that you can expect that elsewhere in those contracts, there'll be very tight exclusions and limitations of liability, as you see in sales and supply contracts. You're also possibly, I'll go further than that, say probably dealing with jurisdiction provisions which favour the supplier. So how can I put this into context? Let's take an example of general average, because I think that's probably a, a useful scenario to explain why I've said this. This is something that keeps me awake at night. Uh, let's assume that an incident uh, arises as a result of a cyber compromise of a vessel's system. Uh, could be a grounding, could be any kind of general average incident. The cargo interest, but do what the cargo interest also always does, uh, they say we don't need to contribute to general average because the vessel was unseaworthy. Now, normally, if it could be shown that the system involved, which was attacked or compromised or failed, had been installed prior to the owner acquiring the vessel, and let's say in our scenario that the evidence reveals that the relevant cyber protections on the piece of uh, equipment uh, were faulty or not to industry uh, standard when the owner acquired the vessel, then the owner would say, that's not in my scope of responsibility. The, the, the case on that is uh, the Moncaster Castle, that any defect prior to the point in time when uh, the owner had ownership or control of the vessel, not their responsibility. But does the Moncaster Castle work, very established law for a very long time, in circumstances where there's been a cyber breach? Most technology now benefits from machine learning, so could it be the case that the owner who's failed to conduct a due diligence review, and let's stop there, what does that mean? Uh, you know, Does that mean they've acquired it from the right person or they've had the system audited or does it mean they've regularly go through every line of code on the system? So if they've failed in some way, they don't have the relevant firewalls, computer code, signing defences up to date and adequate, could that cyber interruption lead to an argument that there's been a lack of due diligence? I think that's a real battleground that we can see cargo interests starting to deploy against owners uh, to defeat uh, the defences. And for example, in that example I've just given, avoid their duty to contribute towards general average. 
Let me give you another example, which is perhaps even more extreme, but I think is something that we will see debated be before the courts. And, and that's in relation to the 1976 Limitation Convention. As I think probably most people listening to this podcast will be aware, uh, the 76 Convention and, and those that have followed it have had the effect of raising the limit. But the payoff for that is to make it extremely hard to break limitation. You have to show either an act or omission on the part of the owner uh, committed with intent uh, to cause such loss, uh, probably very extremely rare, or recklessly with knowledge that the loss would probably result. Now, up to now, also quite rare. But let's just focus on this recklessly with knowledge that the loss would probably result in a cyber context. Now, my first point here is that in relation to a failure to have in place proper cyber protections, that fault probably does go to the actual owning entity rather than those who were, say, responsible at the time for the navigation and maintenance of the vessel. And in the circumstance where there are updates, cyber protections, systems available on the market, where there's been such uh, publicity about cyber risk, if an owner has not afforded themselves of that level of protection, or, uh, and this is what I would be arguing as somebody that wants to break limit, uh, that the owner doesn't have in place a, a system for checking the level of their exposure to cyber attack or compromise, or that the owner has failed to have a system in place to research what systems are available on the market, could that omission amount to recklessness with knowledge which could give rise to the possibility to break limitation. Now, that is a point that I've discussed with leading counsel and some very significant leading counsel who agree with me uh, that could well amount to recklessness, which could rise, give rise to a right to break uh, limitation. A limitation could well be easier to break if a parsimonious owner chooses not to invest in the best technology available on the market. Indeed, uh, I can see, and again, this is something where I've been aided by discussions with leading counsel, a significant amount of other more routine cases where, say, a crew is dealing with technical equipment, but they fail to update it properly. Uh, then there would be unseaworthiness in the same way that if a chart software needs to be updated but isn't, that gives rise to a claim. That, to me, seems to be a huge issue. I think one of the conclusions from uh, Julian's expose there is, for the moment, unrecoverable GA contributions would continue to qualify for recovery from the clubs. This, on the other hand, might well change were the LMA 5403 to be introduced to club rules in 2022. As far as the business interruption is concerned, for example, following a TMSA 3 failure to to failure on representation the shoreline's maritime cyber insurance policy recognizes the potential loss of profit that follows on from a cyber attack and it would include the additional costs of re-establishing a sire approval which might have been suspended following on uh, from a cyber attack i think for me one of the reasons why the insurance industry is reacting in the way it is in bringing on board the exclusions is because there is a real concern about the impact that a cyber attack will have on our sector. And so I can see the regulatory sector 
really tightening up on cyber. And Julian, to what extent um, has the BIMCO cybersecurity clause of 2019 been adopted? Have you seen any disputes arising from the inclusion of this clause? And what are the lessons to date and what have been the findings of such disputes? There's been a pretty strong uptake of the clause, so I'm seeing it more and more regularly when I'm reviewing charter parties. I'm unaware of any claim which has currently gone before the courts or arbitration uh, involving the clause. And indeed, when you look at the way that the clause is drafted, it's actually drafted to avoid dispute because it's a clause which is seeking to address responsibility and share that contractually between the parties. So, as always with BIMCO, it's, it's a very good balancing act between the often conflicting requirements of the owner and the charterer of a vessel and is there to avoid dispute and set out what responsibility is. But I'm not overly confident that the clause in itself addresses a number of the issues that we've raised above. It's a good starting point. But actually, just this last week, I've been... Um, instructed to look at, at that provision for an operator that, that have asked me whether I think it's adequate to protect their interests. And my answer to that was no. And the, as a result of that, we've uh, actually revised a specific cybersecurity provision for them that I believe is more fit for their purpose and provides them with greater protection. And finally, Julian, it, it seems to me that you perceive ship owners' due diligence as a key element in their, in their armory as they try to protect themselves from this evidently burgeoning exposure that you've referred to. From our perspective, loss prevention is critical in this process, but no amount of resource will ever see the com- complete elimination of the risk. And for those attacks that do manage, uh, do manage to evade owners' defences and or an out, uh, and or for an out-and-out system failure, Shoreline's MCI product can offer a fleet instant access to highly qualified claim support and indemnity for the costs and expenses incurred in returning to normal operational capacity. Julian, close this podcast. Could you please outline the key elements of your cyber risk management proposal for owners who seek to address their exposure to this new risk area. Thanks, Nick. Yes, I completely agree with how you started that question. I do perceive ship owners' due diligence as a key element. In fact, my concern is that the the defences that have been established over a number of years in order to create a playing field where owners can operate fairly has been massively eroded by cyber because when all those defences and provisions were drafted, uh, they were drafted in mind of the perils uh, that uh, those operating in our sector face every day. But when those all those defences were developed, uh, we weren't we were unaware, we weren't thinking about this new peril, uh, which is cyber risk. So for me, the approach has to be two things. This is a call out to all my legal brethren as, as well. 
as an industry in order to provide the service to our clients that we hopefully provide we've got to stop being purely reactive uh, we've got to become more proactive uh, and again embracing what you said in this beginning to this question nick looking at loss prevention in the same way that the clubs have introduced loss prevention so where we started we were talking about this in maritime product uh, this is what it really aims to do uh, offer a proactive solution which creates uh, loss prevention and then as a secondary element akin to your mci product sets out a regime for what do you do how do you react if there has been a cyber compromise so the loss prevention element of it is uh, first of all the audit uh, to to look at whether or not you are cyber compliant with the various regulations secondly a legal audit to look at your provisions within your contracts to make sure that they do actually work we we go back to what we were just saying about the bim code laws and we've just improved on one of those and also i've had a number of cases already where uh, a client has sought to deploy a cyber defense clause within a contract and it's failed to bite uh, because it wasn't really adequate to give them the protection they thought it would so there's there's a legal audit uh, and then another part of the loss prevention is a technological audit the the system that we have with mission secure that creates this full awareness tool but also an actual live defense tool uh, is like an endoscope uh, for a cyber system if you like the technology allows us to go inside the owner's systems and by doing that we can see where the exposures are uh, where the risks lie not just looking at it diagrams of the systems and conducting detailed interviews we do that as well uh, with the it and uh, security and data protection personnel but we actually use technology to go inside the system and see where the exposure is uh, and then the the fourth part of the loss prevention initiative that we provide is this tech which is military grade tech which is designed to actually go on board vessels it's proof tested so that it can take the rigor of being at sea and that is not only keeping a monitor of the system 24/7 uh, but it's actually creating an active defense uh, for someone that's trying to break into an operational technology system and compromise the vessel so those four elements are the loss prevention element but then the fifth element which is more akin to the MCI product is that we uh, effectively provide a, a 24/7 emergency response for cyber so in the same way that many of uh, my colleagues in the uh, legal industry in the leading maritime firms have provided a an admiralty response for a casualty for a, for a collision or a, another peril at sea we now provide that same service in relation to cyber so on the legal side that would be everything from managing any claims to minimizing business interruption and loss to protection of business reputation and very importantly today managing media and that's not just mainstream media it's also social media uh, right down to what the crew or what the people in the owner's office might be saying on their facebook pages or on instagram or, or any other system so we do a full uh, media response and then on the technological side because of our link up with mission secure as i say are military grade they they're providing these defenses for US Air Force US Navy we deploy 
uh, their people on site mm. to stop any further intrusion, to get the systems back up to speed and running safely in with the minimum amount of disruption uh, possible. I, I am confident of saying, and I'm very happy for anybody to challenge me on this, that at the moment, and I'm sure others will follow, we have the best cyber response package available in the market. Well, that's quite a tour de force from INSE's Julian Clark, for which many, many thanks. Julian has alerted listeners to the effect of recently ramped up regulatory requirements, the inestimable ramifications of a cyber attack or breach of an owner's cyber security plan, running through from the legal impact on his charter parties to the complexities of satisfying data protection regulators all of which carry damaging financial consequences, which, as Julian has indicated, can be mitigated. We also touched on trends in the insurance market, which have the potential to add, rather than reduce the exposures being run by ship owners and charterers, at least in the first instance. We hope this podcast has been informative, and both INCE and Shoreline are open to any questions that arise from its content. Again, Julian... Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.bn today.